You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Friends, we live in a culture of vengeance. And there's one thing in our culture that illustrates this fact perfectly. Our lunches. True story. There was a recent Reddit thread. Reddit is a social media site, for those less familiar. And the thread was entirely devoted to the petty ways that people sought revenge against those who messed with their lunches. Here are some of the highlights. In grade school, I used to bring a bag of chips to school, storing them in the same backpack pocket each day. One jerk found this out and always punched my backpack and crushed my chips. So one day, I swapped them out with sewing pins. I think he got the point. I used to bring a couple of hard-boiled eggs to work for a snack, and someone kept stealing them. So one day, I swapped them out with raw eggs. Really cracked me up. Back when my mom was in school, she said someone would always steal both her brother's lunches. So one day, her grandma made brownies and put huge amounts of laxatives in them. Revenge never flowed so sweetly. And while those examples are certainly petty and funny and humorous, our penchant for revenge runs a lot deeper than just our lunches. In fact, for as long as humans have been around, we have loved and even elevated the idea of revenge. We've actually built entire cultures and societies on the foundation of repaying harm with harm. Take the words of Aristotle, for instance, one of the great founders of Western philosophy and ethics. He said this, to take vengeance on one's enemies is nobler than to come to terms with them. For to retaliate is just, and that which is just is noble, and further, a courageous man ought not to allow himself to be beaten. Aristotle a guy we still trust and study today, and he advocates for vengeance, revenge, upon those who have wronged you. Or take the practices of ancient Egypt. They had this remarkable thing that they did. They'd take pieces of pottery, and then they'd write their enemies' names on those pieces of pottery, and then they'd write curses that they'd like to inflict upon their enemies on that pottery as well. These were called execration texts. And then they'd take that pottery, and they'd smash it on the ground because they believed that it had a magical ability to smash, to crush, and to curse their enemies. And then, just for good measure, they'd have the religious leaders go ahead and pee on that broken pottery as well, just to fully desecrate their enemies. Disgusting, right, Cece? (laughs) But before we just think that that's a disgusting thing that ancient people used to do, I think we should probably start to think about our own culture too. American culture loves and even celebrates revenge. We have our own execration texts today. In fact, we make a new one every year. It always stars Liam Neeson. He's on a plane or a train. He has a particular set of skills, and he goes around murdering people through Europe or on the train to bring about vengeance, right? We pay millions of dollars every year to see that movie. Or how about our music? Carrie Underwood fans in the room? Before he cheats? I dug my key into the side of his pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive carved my name into his leather seats. I took a Louisville slugger to both headlights, slashed a hole in all four tires. Maybe next time he'll think before he cheats. Mmm, vengeance. That song, by the way, is, according to Billboard, one of the top 10 most requested karaoke songs in history. 
We love vengeance in our culture. We even put it in the mouths of our superheroes, right? The latest Batman movie, I am vengeance. Right? <laughs> See, for most of us, the only way we can think to respond to harm that has been inflicted upon us is to inflict harm back. We all have our moments or people or even entire seasons of our lives where we prioritize revenge, and it's often the default mode of being for us. And the main reason we do that is because in the moment, we think revenge will really bring us lasting peace. We think if we can just make that person pay for what they did to me, if we can just see them suffer like I've suffered, then we'll find fulfillment, lasting joy and peace. In fact, there's a group of Swiss researchers who put some data behind this. They did a study on revenge. They had numerous people who were wronged in a game as part of the study, and then they asked those people uh, to think about how they'd like to respond in punishment to those who had wronged them. And then they measured their brain waves along the way, and what they found is a rush of neural activity to the part of the brain that processes rewards. In other words, they found that in the short term, revenge feels rewarding. It feels like it will bring us the peace and life we're longing for, but that short-term reward quickly disappears. Another recent study in the journal Behavioral Medicine found that harboring vengeance in our minds and hearts is directly connected to heart disease, high blood pressure, and chronic illness. Psychological scientists have further found that instead of bringing healing to our pain, revenge actually tends to prolong the pain because it makes a cycle of retaliation. It prevents justice and healing. It doesn't bring it. As a great philosopher Francis Bacon once put it, a person who studieth revenge keeps his own wounds fresh, which otherwise would heal. Vengeance does not bring us the peace we're looking for, friends. It is a sickness that is literally killing us. Repaying harm with harm, fighting fire with fire, walking softly and carrying a big stick, it doesn't work. We need a better way to deal with our brokenness, a better way to deal with the harm that's been done to us and the harm we do to others. We're continuing in our teaching series here at Midtown called Character Matters. We're going through the book of 1 Samuel together, and we're examining the ways in these stories about what it looks like to live as people of character in the world, people who are transformed by God and healed of all of our moral sicknesses. And this morning, we explore a point that I think is important for us in our revenge culture. It points to the antidote for our revenge sickness. We see this in the example of David, who refuses to repay harm with harm, and instead chooses to repay harm with good. So if you have a Bible, friends, open it with me to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 24 today. 1 Samuel is near the beginnings of your Bibles, if you're flipping there. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. Other words are going to be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. 1 Samuel chapter 24, we're reading the whole chapter today. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to look for David and his men in the direction of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds beside the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here's the day of which the Lord has said to you, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David went and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's cloak. Afterwards, David was stricken to the heart because he had cut off a corner of Saul's cloak. 
He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to raise my hand against him, for he is the Lord's anointed. So David scolded his men severely and did not permit them to attack Saul. Then Saul got up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterwards, David rose up and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and did obeisance. David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of those who say David seeks to do you harm? This very day, your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave, and some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not raise my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your cloak in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your cloak and did not kill you, you may know for certain that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you're hunting me to take my life. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the ancient proverb says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who do you pursue? A dead dog? A single flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. May he see to it and plead my case and vindicate me against you. And when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is that your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you're more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, where I have repaid you evil. Today you have explained how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For who has ever found an enemy and sent the enemy safely away? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you've done to me this day. Now I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my descendants after me, that you'll not wipe out my name from my father's house. So David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The book of Samuel is largely a tale of two kings. Earlier in the story, we met the first king. His name is King Saul. And he is a king who had all of the outer trappings of a great, mighty warrior. The sort of strong man you want to put in front of crowds. The sort of strong man that you want to vote for. The sort of strong man that you want to battle for. But we quickly learn in the story that underneath all of that outer impressiveness stands an insecure, selfish, and immature man. As it turns out, the one who looks most fit to lead, according to worldly standards, is actually the one least fit to lead. And so God promises that he'll raise up a different leader and that Saul won't continue and his lineage won't continue as kings. Enter David, who's a lowly shepherd who defies all of the expectations of what a king would look like. He's young, he's humble, he works an overlooked manual labor job that was often, uh, well, I guess uh, the word would be, <laughs> I'm trying to think of the right word to say this, uh, it, it was overlooked and belittled in his culture to be a shepherd at that time. And God says that that new boy, this young, humble shepherd, will become king. But Saul doesn't know that yet in the story. And so David begins to enjoy great success in much of his life. He eventually comes to serve King Saul in the royal courts. He becomes a leader in the army, and he enjoys victories and praise on all sides in his life. And as he enjoys more and more success, Saul 
suffers more and more envy, more and more wrath, more and more anger. And it quickly evolves into murderous rage. Saul eventually drives David to flee into the wilderness for his life. He's being chased by the king who to this point he's only ever humbly served. And so when we arrive at chapter 24, here in the story, this scene is setting up for us a collision course between King Saul and the soon-to-be King David. It's like all of the epic action movies of our time. The bad guy learns where the good guy's been hiding out, and he brings his forces to come and attack that good guy, and the good guy is waiting in the cave, the calm before the storm. And our expectation, as it is with most narratives like this, is that a major battle is coming. These two are going to duke it out. There's going to be a final shootout at the end of the Western, right? There's going to be a final sword fight at the end of The Count of Monte Cristo. There's going to be a final battle at the end of The Avengers, right? This is how all of our movies go. And so Saul nears the area where he knows David is hiding, but then he suddenly feels the urge to use the bathroom, which is just really weird that that detail is included in the story. Why is that there, right? Why does he go and relieve himself? I mean, think about it. If you were watching an Avengers movie, right? Thanos and the Avengers are getting ready to battle. They're lining up, and then Thanos quickly says, hold up, got to pee. Weird. Not what you would expect in this situation. What's going on here, right? Well, it seems like the author is indicating something really ironic about Saul. Remember, to this point, he's gone to great lengths to indicate his power and strength and might. He's brought an overwhelming number of men, all to fight one lowly shepherd and a few of his buddies. He's been obsessed with building control and security, with never losing to make sure that he always wins. And after all of that work, where does Saul end up? In the dark, completely exposed, entirely vulnerable. The strong man seeking revenge is really a weak man at the mercy of others. And it turns out that Saul's bathroom cave is the exact spot where David and his men are hiding out. And once David's men realize it's Saul, they get hyped. Like, this is it. it couldn't, God is handing you revenge on a silver platter. Sneak up on him, take him out, practice justice. That's what justice looks like, bring revenge. And so David quickly draws his sword. He stealthily sneaks up behind Saul. He lifts his weapon, and then he cuts off a corner of his cloak. He doesn't kill him. That's what we expect him to do, but he doesn't. It seems like David is unwilling to dispose of his enemy here. But the cutting of Saul's robe was actually a symbolic act of revenge. See, the robe represented Saul's kingship and rule. By cutting at the robe, David was actually undermining Saul's power, undermining his dignity, undermining his identity. He was still getting back at him. He had an intent that was internal to bring revenge upon his enemy. And even though the consequence was small, it was still there. And that's why David feels regret in the story. Do you notice that? He immediately feels regret after what he did. While he wasn't murderous, there was still a spirit of revenge to him here. He wanted to undermine the one who had harmed him. He wanted to get back at him. He wanted to see Saul fall, even if he wasn't the one to bring about that fall. David is realizing in this story that his heart, his inner life, is not in the right place. He's revealing to us that revenge runs much deeper than outward actions. Revenge usually starts as a heart problem. See, most of us in this room don't seek revenge in our lives by sneaking up on our enemies while they're on the toilet and killing them. That's how you work. We need to talk. <laughs> and actually, you have some other people you need to talk to as well. 
But just because you aren't committing outward revenge against your enemies doesn't mean you aren't harboring vengeance in your heart. In fact, the internal part of vengeance is often what makes it so sinister. We hold it in ourselves without even realizing we're doing it. And so it slowly eats away at us. It turns us into divisive and bitter people. Think about it. Have you ever held something against someone for weeks? And then when it was particularly convenient, you brought that thing back up in order to make them feel bad? I'm sure siblings and spouses have never done that before, right? Have you ever resented someone because of what they've done and then viewed every action they took through the dismissive and angry lens of your resentment? Have you ever made consistent sarcastic comments that subtly undermine the one you don't like? Have you constantly brought up what someone said or did to other people in order to deface their reputation and elevate yourself? Gossip is one of our favorite tools for vengeance. Or maybe you just quietly sit in the cave of your own heart, longing for the failure of your enemy and savoring that failure when it comes. Friends, most times our vengeance starts deep within us. Most times it's a self-justifying sickness of the soul. We give ourselves permission to carry malice and condemnation against those evil people over there. And so we walk around and we subtly cut off the robes of everyone we don't like. We subtly try to undermine everyone who's harmed us. But when that's our approach, it will only ever destroy us. It will only ever harden us and poison our souls. I like how the great author Frederick Beekner put it when he wrote about vengeful anger. He said this, to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you're giving back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you're wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Friends, David is showing us that if we want to become people who heal the violence and vengeance of our outer world, we need to deal with the violence and vengeance of our inner world. If we want to begin the work of peace out there, we need to begin the work of peace in here. The solution to the sickness of vengeance starts with our hearts. That's why Jesus takes this so seriously in his Sermon on the Mount, the most comprehensive block of teaching we have of his in the New Testament. He said it this way. He said, you've heard it said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, if you're angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there. Leave church and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift, and then worship. That's precisely the opposite advice that Aristotle gives us, or Liam Neeson gives us. Jesus is telling us, check your heart, because a life of character, a life of wholeness with God, means being a person who is honest about our own vengeance and commits to seeing it changed, commits to being transformed. And that's what David does here. He recognizes the vengeful condition of his heart and he does a 180 in his behavior. And from this point forward in the story, he only repays evil or harm with good. And he does four different things, I think, that illustrate how we can start to institute this in our own lives as well. Four different things that show us how to repay harm with good. We need to seek the dignity of others. 
We need to leave justice in God's hands. We need to practice forgiveness. And we need to end the cycle of revenge. Seek the dignity of others, leave justice in God's hands, practice forgiveness, end the cycle of revenge. First, notice the reason, seeing dignity in others. Notice the reason that David gives to his men not to touch Saul. He says he's the Lord's anointed. Later on in the passage, this is actually the reason he gives Saul for why he didn't strike him. He said, you're the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to raise my hand against you. And that language of anointing, it's not something we like, use in our dinner table conversations very often, but it was common in the ancient world. The Lord's anointed in that day were people like prophets or priests or kings. They were people who were specially designated to both serve and protect the people, save the people in many ways, which meant there was a special dignity to the Lord's anointed. And it wasn't because they in themselves were all that great. It was actually because the Lord had said something about them independent of their behavior. See, Saul, to this point in the story, has been nothing but a scumbag. He's shown himself to be entirely broken and corrupt and evil. He hasn't earned good treatment by his own merit. But David looks right through his behavior. David is treating Saul with the dignity that God has given him, not the indignity that his actions deserve. In short, David is treating Saul as the man he was called by God to be, not the man that he is. And it's there that we see the first step in repaying harm with good. We need to start by recognizing and naming the other's essential dignity. Because the truth is, in your life, you're constantly going to be surrounded by people who do you harm. You're going to constantly be surrounded by people you disagree with. Constantly surrounded by people who don't deserve good treatment. And you're always going to be tempted to define people by their bad actions, to define them as the ugliness that they have inflicted upon you. But when we feel that temptation, friends, we need to remember the essential truth that even those people have inherent dignity. That's actually one of the things that the Bible is most clear about from page one onward. All humans are described as being made in God's image, which means all humans reflect God in such a way that they must be protected. All humans. Palestinians and Israelis. Republicans and Democrats. Suns fans and Lakers fans. That one's just for me. All human beings have a sacred dignity to them, friends. Not because of what they've done, but because of who they are in God. Every time we look upon someone else, especially one who has wronged us, we need to see in them a glimpse of God and therefore treat them with the same sort of reverence and dignity that we would extend towards there's a great example of this, actually, uh, from the nation of South Africa in the 20th century, where apartheid, genocide, and segregation tore apart the nation. Uh, there was a minister there named Bishop Malusi. He was actually arrested and tortured in South Africa for fighting against segregation and genocide. But rather than sparking a spirit of revenge, while he was in prison, he encouraged him, others around him and then embodied himself, repaying harm with good. And in the midst of that torture, he said this insight, which I think is a powerful example for all of us, and shows us what David really did here. He said about the people torturing him that these are God's children and they are losing their humanity and we need to help them recover it. These are God's children. They're losing their humanity. We need to help them recover it. Friends, if we don't begin our interactions with others from a place of recognizing their essential dignity, we will never be able to heal the vengeance in our hearts and world. 
the foundation for healing against one another is always the recognition of dignity. So that's the first thing we see in David's actions here. The second thing we see about repaying, repaying harm with good is leaving justice in God's hands. Notice in verse 12, when he speaks to Saul, he says, may the Lord judge between you and me. I'm not the judge. The Lord's the judge. He's acknowledging that he is not the one who has either the wisdom or the right to bring justice in this situation. He's acknowledging that only God is ultimately just, and he trusts that whatever justice will look like in the end, that God will take care of it. He trusts that God will be right in this situation. And so David is repaying harm with good because he recognizes that he is not the ultimate bringer of justice. That is crucial if we want to heal vengeance. See, vengeance always assumes two things. It always assumes, first, that we objectively know what the other person deserves. But two, it also assumes that we have the right to give them what they deserve. It assumes that we know it, and it assumes that we have the right to give it. It assumes that we are in an elevated position, a self-righteous position over the one we disagree with, our enemy. And there's just one problem with that view. It's a lie. Both of those are lies. First, none of us objectively knows what an other person deserves because none of us has all the facts. We don't know what other people are going through. We don't know what their background is. We don't know what their future holds. It might be tomorrow that the person who has wronged you is actually going to set about making amends throughout their entire life. It might be that your forgiveness of them actually leads them to change. Your revenge today might actually prevent them from changing. None of us is wise enough to know what perfect justice looks like. Only God is. But secondly, even if we could be objective, none of us has the right to judge because all of us have in some way inflicted harm upon others in the same way they've inflicted harm upon us. Friends, none of us live as we ought. None of us love God with our heart, soul, mind. None of us love our neighbors ourselves. Which means the very sorts of things that we want to condemn out there in others are the things that we turn around and practice all the time in our lives. What David realizes in this passage is that the brokenness that is driving Saul to murderously pursue him is the same brokenness that inhabits his heart. And so his ability to repay harm with good is rooted in his understanding that he is guilty of a vengeful heart in the same way Saul is. There's a great Russian author named Alexander Solzhenitsyn who wrote about this when reflecting on the gulags, the Soviet gulags in the 20th century. He said this, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who's willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Friends, we need to judge beyond ourselves. We need something that can bring justice in the ways we always fail, and the scriptures tell us we have that. We have a God who is fully just and fully merciful. So that's the second part of repaying harm with good. We leave justice in God's hand. And then the third part is forgiveness. And most of us in our culture really love the idea of forgiveness, but we often misunderstand it. For instance, we say things like forgive and forget which sounds really nice at first, but it's garbage. We can't forget. It's impossible. The harm and pain that we have experienced at the hands of others can't be magically undone. That can't be wiped from our memories or our bodies or our lives. It can't be erased. We don't have that little men in black mind eraser thing. 
And that also means that we can't make it up to one another to try to cancel it out and erase it. That's something we often say too. Let me make it up to you. As if my efforts can erase the harm. As if my effort can cancel the pain. It can't. The pain is still there. No matter how much making up we try. And so the question for us is never, friends, what can erase the pain or cancel the pain? The question is what can sever the chains of power that the pain has over us? What can bring peace and restoration in the middle of the pain? And that's ultimately where true forgiveness comes in. True forgiveness isn't amnesia. It isn't forgetting. It doesn't ignore or overlook pain. True forgiveness instead fully names and acknowledges the offenses that have been done to us and then refuses to hold those offenses against others. It fully names and acknowledges the offenses that have been inflicted upon us and then refuses to hold those offenses against others. And that's what David illustrates for us here. He doesn't actually ignore the harm that Saul has done. He acknowledges it to Saul. You've been chasing me down trying to kill me. It doesn't make me feel good. It's harmed me. It's hurt me. He acknowledges it. But then... He refuses to define Saul by that harmful behavior. Do you notice all of his actions he took towards Saul? He bowed down to him. He didn't self-righteously elevate himself over the enemy. He called him by his title as king, a sign of respect. He didn't call him some crotchety, revenge-filled old man. He even refers to him at one point in the text as father, a term of affection. David is committed to not defining Saul by what he has wrongfully done. He's committing to not punishing Saul for what he's wrongfully done. And that's what enables him to repay harm with good. And that's the same truth we have to reckon with in our own pain and hurt, friends. Look, I don't, standing up here, get to tell you what you do with your pain and hurt. That's up to you to do. But I can say what Jesus encourages us to do. And I can say what I've had to do with my own pain and hurt. It's not easy. It's going to be really hard. But it brings life. It is the only way to life in the middle of all of our vengeance. I wanted to share with you guys a, a fourfold framework to uh, forgiveness that's been helpful for me in my own life. It's from a book called The Book of Forgiving. Uh, but if you find forgiveness difficult in a particular area, uh, these steps might help guide you in that direction. True forgiveness starts with telling the story. Speak the facts of what has happened. And do that with a trusted loved one or other. And if you can, consider doing that with the person who has harmed you in some way. I say consider that because it's not always possible. There are some cases in which that person is long gone or that person has no desire or would be unsafe for you to tell a story to them. But if it's safe and if it's possible, tell a story to the one who's harmed you. And then once you've told the story, the second step is to name the hurt. Attach feelings to the facts. Grief is okay. Pain is okay. Anger is okay. Those are feelings that are attached to the facts of what's been done. Name it. It's going to be a long and hard process to do. It's going to take time. It's going to take trusted community to do it. But name the hurt. And then once you've done that, the third step is to grant forgiveness. Choose not to hold the harm and hurt against the other. And when we do that, when we grant forgiveness in that way, it breaks the chains that bind us to the other person in both directions. So we actually free them from no longer being defined by their guilt or their shame or their evil. But we also free ourselves because we are no longer burdened by the weight of carrying the offenses ourselves. We're not dragging them along with us. Those, 
uh, actions, those people don't have power anymore over us. Forgiveness is oftentimes as much about us as it is about them. And then finally, friends, the fourth step is to renew or release the relationship. Renewal, always the preference. Restoration of the relationship, always the preference. But again, that's sometimes hard to do. It takes two people to renew a relationship, and sometimes that may not happen. So if that's true, you can release the relationship, but renew or release. It's what it looks like to practice forgiveness. It's what it looks like to lead to life through our pain. And then finally, friends, the fourth part of repaying harm with good in this story is ending the cycle of revenge. See, what David realizes is that if he chooses to kill Saul, then he will ultimately become the very thing he despises. He will become the thing that he hates. He will become the thing that he is longing to end. And so retaliating in revenge only makes him a culprit, and it continues a cycle of retaliation. You guys, if we become people who vengefully vengefully respond to the pain and harm that others inflict upon us, then we will ultimately allow their evil to stain us. We will absorb the things that they've done to us and then transfer those to others. Revenge means their wrath becomes our wrath. Their self-righteousness becomes our self-righteousness. Their violence becomes our violence. As the great Catholic theologian Ronald Rawlheiser put it, pain that is not transformed is transferred. Pain that is not transformed is transferred. And so David is showing us that repaying harm with good breaks the cycle of revenge that our world is so defined by. And you actually see that in Saul's reaction here. Saul breaks down in tears in response to David's action. This man who was hell-bent on vengeful, murderous rage is broken down in front of David. The violence that we were expecting to be the culmination of this story disappears entirely. And this is how it works oftentimes in our world. There's another story from South Africa during apartheid and segregation of another bishop named Desmond Tutu. He worked with Bishop Malusi in South Africa to fight those things there. And one of the primary ways he did that was by pastoring a multi-ethnic church that broke down the barriers of his culture. And so he welcomed welcomed all sorts of people from all sorts of different backgrounds. And one Sunday church service, while Tutu was preaching, numerous men, armed with AK-47s, burst into the church, shouting and threatening to kill Tutu if he didn't end the service right then and cease all of his work in the church. What would you do? And Tutu, he took in the scene for a few seconds. He scanned over the men in the room, And then he calmly responded to them this way. Welcome, friends. You've come to join the winning side. Please take a seat. There's room for you here. And then he just kept on preaching his sermon. And those guys didn't know what to do. And so they just sat down in the pews. They set their AKs down and they sat down and joined the service. And years later, Tutu was speaking at a church conference and he was approached by a man whom he hadn't ever remembered meeting. And that man said, I was one of the guys that showed up to kill you that day. But after your response, I gave it up. I joined the fight against apartheid and I became a follower of Jesus. That is what repaying harm with good does, friends. It breaks the cycle of revenge in our world. And that message, by the way, isn't just found here in David. This story is an arrow pointing well beyond itself. Where David saw the dignity in Saul, there's another who saw the dignity in all. 
Where David refused to practice vengeance on Saul, there's another who faced down the vengeance of all. And where David forgave Saul, there's another who forgave all. The story is an arrow to Jesus. David's a great example for us, but even he failed to live this out in his life. But Christ, ultimately, in every part of his life, only repaid harm with good. And he did that once for all on the cross. And then in his resurrection, he said that we too can become people like that. We too can become people who dignify even our enemies. We too can become people who grant forgiveness for the most egregious things. We too can become people who end the cycle of revenge. When we entrust ourselves to the one who has done that ultimately on the cross and in the resurrection, he promises that his spirit will start to transform us to be those sorts of people in the world. That's why we come to this table together every week. Because it's here that we become united with the life of Christ again. It's here that we leave our vengeance at the feet of Jesus to the one whose justice and mercy far, far expands beyond us. And it's here that we can become people who repay harm with good. So come with me to the table, friends. Let's be transformed.